their bodies are members of Christ himself. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is unified with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, 2 Corinthians, Paul continuing in the same thread, writing to that church in Corinth. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can grab your seats. Let me pray for us. Father, as we make our study this morning, in the day and age that you have placed us as Christians, as followers of you, we are faced with multiple challenges. We are different. We are indwelt by God himself. And so, a world gone awry, a world that really sits at enmity, is an enemy of God, will also oppose your ways in and through us. May the Christian community be granted such compassionate courage, such selflessness in these days. And we pray, Father, for each of us, as you come to us and you challenge us, as you teach us, where we are living according to our own standard, all of us, Father, fall prey because of sin in our lives to deceived understandings of what it is to flourish. The enemy plants lies, and we all believe those deceptions that we can chart our own course for human flourishing. Forgive us, heal us, and may we stand fast before you, a people made holy by the life and death of Jesus, a people pursuing holiness in partnership with you by the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And may we be a refuge, Father. May every soul that you've gathered here this morning, may they know how infinitely loved they are. And may your love transform us. May your love bring to us a new and fresh sense of what it is to be human and to flourish. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, amen, amen. So this morning, you guys, we're just going to continue on in our series entitled Future Church. Now, before we get into our topic for the morning, I wanted to give a quick review for where we've been, and I felt like it was really important. I laid out the Future Church series in a specific order for a specific reason. So, by way of reminder, we started our first session by talking about rest in a culture of exhaustion through the practice of Sabbath. Sabbath-based rest is a posture of heart that lives into the world and it lives into the world from the foundations of absolute surrendered trust, of celebration, celebrating God who has made us, and contemplation, considering all that God has given us and who he is for us and in us. The following week, we contrasted Sabbath rest with work 
or vocation. As a community of Jesus followers, we practice vocation. What that means is we look at our work, our jobs, as a slice of the pie in our greater Christian calling, our vocation to to rule, to cultivate creation, and to care for the other that we've been sent to. Then the following week, Joshua, Shua, he walked us through becoming a community of peace in a culture of outrage via the practice of silence and solitude. Silence, we believe, is what shapes our souls. Silence and stillness is what produces in us the speech that God so desires to speak through us to the world. Then over the last two weeks, we've put out the call for all of us to be pressing into community in a culture of radical individualism and for us to learn to practice generosity and actually doing justice in a culture of consumerism, in a culture of materialism. Now, why this order? Here's why. These final three sessions of Future Church Friends, they're going to probably get a little bit heavy in the room. (laughs) We are going to be heading into some very sensitive topics, social topics, political topics, emotional topics. And because of this, I'm actually going to ask you guys for a little bit of grace on these Sunday mornings. These teachings, normally around 35 to 40 minutes, are probably going to be more like 50 to 60 minutes. I'm asking you to dial in for that time frame to really focus on what we're talking about. And I thought it was important for us to have the foundations in Future Church, the foundations of silence and solitude, Sabbath rest, and community so that we would be able to process these things from a place of rest, from a place of silence and solitude in the midst of our community. And I want to pastorally encourage us as we get into this over the next three weeks to really labor to practice the one another's, to be Sabbathing well, to be speaking, if at all, from a place of silence and stillness, not out of emotional anger or response, and to, to lean into with great compassionate courage to lean into our communities with ever greater vulnerability. For these next sessions, I do want to encourage you guys. Shua encourages you to take notes. Be asking questions that you can be processing yourselves in community and with me or with Alexis or some of our leaders through the course of these next few weeks over cups of coffee. So this morning, a community of holiness in a culture of moral relativism. A community of holiness in a culture of moral relativism. What is morality? Morality is the word that we use to describe the principles of how we as people, as humans, define right and wrong. That's what morality is. And at the root of all moral discussions, at the root of all moral discussions is a series of very, very difficult questions to answer. Let me just give you a few of them. Here's the questions around morality. How do we know, how do you and I know right from wrong? How do we distinguish right from wrong? Who gets to decide that's right, that's wrong? Why does this group or this person carry moral authority in this situation, but this group or this person does not carry moral authority in that situation? And by what standard is right and wrong actually defined? Where is the basis or the foundations for how we define right and wrong as humanity? For this generation of Jesus followers, we find ourselves in what can only be described as a complete moral crisis. We are living through a time of unprecedented moral chaos. Sociologist Philip Reif, he describes our current society 
as a third world moral culture. Now, what he means by that is Reef described first and second world moral cultures as those societies that based their morals, they defined right and wrong, they answered those questions of who knows how to do what is right and wrong, who sets the standard first and second world cultures, they appealed to the transcendent. They appealed to something objective and outside of themselves. So the Greeks, even though they were pagans, they had their myths and their gods from whom they drew their understanding of moral rightness, moral wrongness. And in Western society, Western society's moral values have primarily been founded upon Christianity. Don't confuse that with America is a Christian nation. That's a whole statement with a ton of baggage to it. I'm talking about the Western worldview, the way that most of us, in fact, all of us, I would wager to guess, view the world, the way and the lens through which we see the world. We have for eons now defined our standard of right and wrong. The West was founded upon, Western worldview is encompassed in a Christian worldview. The very thing that our society is crying out for right now, equality, dignity for every person, care for the oppressed and the unseen, liberty to pursue happiness and flourishing, those, my friends, are all deeply Christian impulses rooted in and founded upon deeply biblical foundations. But our society has forgotten its foundations in a biblical worldview, in a Christian worldview, not only America, but the West in general. And it's better said that, in fact, we are systematically jackhammering the foundation out from under our own feet. So Reef said that this turn, a turn from the objective, transcendent moral structures, is creating what he called this third world moral, moral culture. And what he meant by that was third world moral cultures, they answer those questions that I put up there for you. They answer those questions by looking inward. There's nothing transcendent, nothing outside of us. We look inward to our preferences, to our feelings, to our internal senses of right and wrong. And so third world culture reorients the authority for defining right and wrong from a transcendent source outside of self to the individual subjective self. Now, Reef was writing in the 60s. And he observed that no society had ever made such a radical move from the objective transcendent source of morality to the subjective internal source of morality. And he warned that such a move would result in society becoming what he called an anti-culture. An anti-culture that would devour itself from the inside out, splintering across all unimaginable lines. I want to give you guys just a couple really thick, heavy, hot examples of this right now in our cultural moment as Christians. These are the conversations that as a church, as Jesus followers, we must exercise nuance in, we must exercise wisdom in, and we must practice what I'm just coining compassionate courage in, in your workplaces, in your classrooms, in your families, in your friendships. A couple examples of this move from objective to subjective. Last week, Kate Cohen of the Washington Post she published a, an opinion piece entitled, If They're Going to Keep Passing Religious Laws, We're Going to Need Exemptions. Now, Cohen, she started by writing out her frustration with the people who are claiming exemption from coronavirus mandates or from vaccines based on religious convictions. She was really upset about that. But then she turned her attention and she began to center in on the abortion conversation. Mid-article, she writes this. 
Ever since the Texas abortion ban went into effect, I've been rethinking exemptions. Maybe we actually need more of them. If religious people can opt out of secular laws they find sinful, then maybe the rest of us should be able to opt out of religious laws we find immoral. That's right, immoral. We act as if religious people are the only ones who follow a moral compass, and the rest of us just wander around like sheep in search of avocado toast. But you don't need to believe in God or particular religious tenets to have a strong sense of right and wrong. Now, Cohen, she goes on in the article, and she says this about abortion. I am not a believer, but I have beliefs, strong, sincerely held beliefs, such as a seven-week-old embryo, which is a week too old to abort, according to the Texas law, is not a person. It is the blueberry-sized potential for a person. She caps off her article much later in it, saying this, decrying the Texas law, such laws try to force 21st century Americans into alignment with a first century set of moral codes. Heavy. Cohen's piece raises front and center these glaring questions of morality. Let's frame the abortion conversation with the moral questions that I brought up earlier. Who gets to decide when that fetus is a person who gets to decide if that fetus is merely a blueberry-sized potential for a person? And why does that person get to decide that about that blueberry-sized potential or actual person in the womb of a woman? At what point does a person in the womb receive the same protection as you and I? Where is the transition point from blueberry-sized potential to actual person like you and I, worthy of dignity and protection? What about the woman? and how this life is going to affect her. What about the father and his responsibility? And a million other morally complicated questions must be asked, but our center of focus this morning is who gets to decide and why? Why them with that authority? Cohen would say, I decide what I believe internally. Did we all see that? Okay, here's another one. Here's another one. For you super nerds, I can't recommend this book enough. I'm about two-thirds of the way through Carl, Carl Truman's book. It's entitled The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Truman's book, his focus is primarily on the trajectory of the sexual revolution, not beginning at the 60s, but Truman goes back hundreds of years through philosophers and poets and he traces the development of sexual revolutions throughout the West, culminating in the transgender movement of our current moment. Truman opens his book explaining the impetus of his writing, saying this, the origins of this book lie in my curiosity about how and why a particular statement has come to be regarded as coherent and meaningful. I am a woman trapped in a man's body. Now, Truman goes on to explain, and by the way, he's not being mocking or dismissive of that statement. He's not warring against that statement. Rather, just as a matter of fact, the statement is made, and Truman goes on to explain to his grandfather that statement a mere generation or two ago would have seemed absolutely nonsensical. And yet today, a statement like that is not only making sense to most but to question it in any way is considered wrong at the least and dangerous and harmful at the worst. This is what Truman is trying to discern. How did this shift happen in our cultural 
understandings. Truman writes, the behaviors that characterize the sexual revolution are not unprecedented. Homosexuality, pornography, sex outside of marriage. These, for example, have been hardy perennials throughout all of human history. What marks the modern sexual revolution as distinctive is the way that it has normalized these and other sexual phenomena. Okay, M heavy. <laughs> millions and millions of questions being asked right now that need to be processed in community and over cups of coffee with the pastors. But we ask these glaring questions again around Truman's book and what he's studying in his trajectory. Who gets to decide what establishes gender normativity? What is gender normativity? What is femininity? What is masculinity? What are those things? And who gets to decide that? Who decides what is normal sexual phenomena? What is normal sexual desire? What is normal sexual behavior? Who actually gets to determine that? Moral questions like, is it good or bad to act on or deny one's inner sense of self? Why or why not? Is it good or bad to act on or deny one's sexual desire? Why or why not? And a million other questions. What I want you guys to get a feel for here is that our moral moment is more than just a philosophical conundrum that we can toy around with while smoking a pipe and drinking our scotch and sitting in our leather chairs. We are wrestling with the very foundations of creation, of life, of humanness. When does life begin? What constitutes a person worthy of dignity, worthy of protection? What is male? What is female? What is sexuality and how should sexuality be understood and lived? Now, Truman, he does an incredible job. Again, I'm only about two-thirds of the way through it, but he traces the thought leaders and the revolutionaries from Rousseau to Marx to Freud that have shaped this current moment. But the Hebrew sages, they point our situation back to the beginning, saying this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And so from the fall to this moment, we humans have believed the lie that we can be our own gods and we have rejected the one moral transcendent source of all reality and all mor morality, God himself. Now, Scottish philosopher Alistair McIntyre, he calls our moment, this subjective kind of moral chaotic moment, he defines it as emotivism, emotivism. McIntyre writes this, emotivism is the doctrine that all evaluative judgments, and more specifically, all moral judgments, all definitions of right and wrong, all decisions about this is right, this is wrong, McIntyre says, in our moment, all moral judgments are nothing but expressions of preference, expressions of attitude or feeling. And now here's where I draw it into us, us in this room, all of us, because we all do this. We all have this sense of internal moral subjective authority. Statements like, it just feels right. Statements like, I know in my heart that this is a good thing, or the Christian version, God has given me peace about this. Mm. 
These statements are now expected. When we pull that card out, God has just given me peace about this. I've prayed about it. It is now expected to be received as absolutely morally authoritative on any given matter. And should anyone, pastor, professor, parent, friend, peer, challenge and appeal to something outside of one's personal feelings, that is to be interpreted as offensive and motivated certainly by a lack of love. And so in the absence of a transcendent moral arbiter, McIntyre said, we are doomed as a society to generate into nothing more than individuals warring with one another about whose sense of right and wrong has the moral high ground over the other. Cue up the last two years of amplified polarization, intensifying tribalism, Twitter rants, social splintering, and then that deep collective sigh of exhaustion that we're all feeling that sense of hopelessness out in orbit around our souls because we feel like there's absolutely no winning when it's just a war of feelings. But here's where we turn a corner in the teaching this morning. Because for Jesus' followers, friends, we are so far from hopeless. We, of all people, have the greatest, most joy-giving, empowering, life-sustaining hope that you could ever imagine. In the darkness, there is true light. And for such a time as this, in the midst of this moral crisis, Jesus's communities are being renewed and given a way forward through the moral chaos, as well as being called to be a refugee center for those that will come in out of the moral revolutions, because this is going to tear souls apart to be a moral revolution refugee camp for our culture. Our hope is twofold, and it's centered in God's holiness, God's morality, God's holiness, the holiness that Jesus gives us as a gift and the holiness that we perfect in partnership with him. As followers of Jesus, we agree with Jesus's definitions, understanding, and view of reality. I just want to say that again. If we are followers, apprentices of Jesus, the way that Jesus saw reality, the way that Jesus presented the world, the way that Jesus lived into the grain of the universe in obedience to his Father is the way that we see and define reality. We follow Jesus' teachings as they come to us through the four Gospels and through the writings of the New Testament. Therefore, as Jesus' people... Jesus is our transcendent, objective, moral authority. Jesus' moral authority, friends, hear this. Jesus' moral authority, when we use the word holiness, it triggers all of these religious baggage ideas of pointed fingers and rulers slapping down on knuckles if you come from the old school Catholic traditions. <laughs> Jesus' moral authority is not a condemning accusation. Jesus' moral authority is an invitation to truly flourish. To be holy is to be fully human. And so to be holy is to live once again in submission, in submission to God's definitions of life, God's definitions of gender, God's definitions of sexuality, and to thrive as God intended us to thrive. Jesus' moral authority, friends, and the church needs to hear this more than ever, the church does not impose Jesus' moral authority upon the world. The moral authority of Jesus is offered 
as an explanation, as an invitation to all, including our own souls. It's offered, and we either trust Jesus' moral authority and his holiness and receive it and abide by it and live into it, or we don't trust Jesus and we reject his moral authority and we have to find a new source of where our morality and our definitions of right and wrong stem from. Let's talk about holiness for just a moment. Holiness literally means unique or different or set apart. Holiness is just a gift that we receive passively by faith. The good news of the gospel is that we are made new creations in Jesus, literally renewed, made completely new. We are no longer defiled. We are no longer corrupt. We are forgiven through the blood of Jesus and his sacrifice, and we are filled with the Holy Spirit. We are made pure and blameless in the eyes of God. He declares us justified, is the old theological language. He has won the victory for us, and we are set apart for God. Now, while holiness is a gift that is given to us, that we receive by faith through the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, holiness is simultaneously something that we are actively pursuing. It is a gift that we passively receive, and it is something that we partner with God to actively pursue. This is what Paul was telling the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, what promises? The promises of the indwelling spirit of God making us new and clean and forgiven. The promises of being forgiven and freed through the crucifixion of Jesus in our place and his resurrection on our behalf. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves. Let us actively purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. There it is in one sentence from Paul. Receive the promises, and therefore, in light of the promises, actively partner with God to perfect, to complete, to become more fully you, to become more fully human, to perfect holiness. And so this pursuit of holiness, we need to understand that it encompasses the whole of our being, spiritual and physical, from our internal spiritual being to what we do externally in our bodies, it is all of great importance to God. It all matters to God immensely. So let's just focus on this body piece for just a bit. First Corinthians chapter 6. This is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today. We're going to talk about a theology of the body, morality in our body, holiness in our body. So Paul begins here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, already read for us. And you'll notice that it's in quotes. I have the right to do anything. He is quoting the Corinthian church. This is what they were saying. I have the right to do anything, you say, Paul says. But then he says, not everything is beneficial. The Corinthians would say, I can do whatever I want. Paul would say, but don't be mastered by anything. They were saying, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. So Paul was now quoting back to the Corinthians their personal thinking on their bodies and their behavior. And they were essentially saying, I am liberated. I have the right to do anything I want. The Corinthians, like most Greeks of the day, and like us, most modern San Diegans, were saying things like this. Hey, it doesn't matter what I do with my body. It's just a thing. My body's desire for sex is no different than my body's desire for food or drink or sleep. It's just another bodily urge. Translated to today's modern San Diegan moment, doesn't matter what I do with my body. It's just a body. Tender sex and hooking up is just play for adults. Not a big deal. 
we're not hurting anyone, and there's mutual consent, which is really the only moral standard our culture has left, mutual consent. Translated to the modern San Diegan mind frame, I feel these desires so strongly. How could it not be right? How could it not be good? And so Paul's response to this community that was subjectively defining their moral standards and behavior for their bodies was, okay, okay, you subjectively believe that these behaviors are going to be good for you. You believe that with all of your heart. You believe that these are the paths that are going to lead to flourishing, but... From the eyes of your father, not all things are actually going to benefit you the way that you believe they're going to benefit you. These are actually destructive of your soul, destructive of your body, and these self-destructive behaviors become enslaving. Heart, mind, body, and soul is enslaved to these. And then Paul goes on here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and he lays out what I think is one of the strongest theologies of the body that we have in the New Testament, something that we Protestant Christians have long forgotten. If you read any Catholic scholars, they have a rich, robust theology of the body. What do we do with this flesh? We're not just trying to escape it. This body is very important. Let me read for you 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 13. Paul says, the body, this flesh, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Don't you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Four foundations of this theology of the body that Paul lays out here. Number one, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. That word translated sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. Anybody guess what word we get in our English from that? Porneia, very good. (laughs) Porneia. So it's a heavily freighted Greek word. And it essentially encompasses, and I want you guys to all hear this as clearly as possible. Porneia in the New Testament encompasses any and all, any and all sexual behavior outside of the covenant of marriage between two differently sexed individuals, a man and a woman. Friends, heavy, heavy. Porneia. Our bodies were not made for any sort of sexual activity outside of marriage between two covenantally committed, differently sexed people, male and female. All else, Paul says, your bodies were not made for this. Number two, theology of the body. Jesus came back from the dead in a body, and we will too. Our relationship to God, both here and in the eternals, will be in a physical body forever and ever. Our bodies matter eternally. Our bodies are the locus point of our relationship to God. Number three, our bodies mysteriously and spiritually are united with Jesus as members of his body. In the realm of the spirit, we are told here in this section that we are now as followers of Jesus, indwelt by the spirit, one with him, and he is one with us. What we do in our bodies as members of the body of Jesus, Jesus does in the world. This is why Paul is saying, don't you know when you join yourself to a prostitute, 
You're a member of the body of Jesus. Jesus is doing that in the world. It's intense. And then number four, on a theology of the body, when it comes to intimacy and sex, sex is not only a physical act in the Christian theology of the body. It is a spiritual act. It is a spiritual uniting of two souls. Very mysterious. Shua wanted me to use the word magical, (laughs) just to lighten it in the room a little bit. (laughs) It's magical. Now, from these four foundations, Paul goes on, and he's going to give this firm exhortation to the Corinthian church, which, by the way, was a complete frat party of a church. Drunkenness, weird sex stuff was going on in that church. He's going to give his community in Corinth a firm exhortation, and then some explanations, some further explanations on this theology of the body and why this is so important to our flourishing and to God. He says, flee, verse 18, flee, flee, run, get, flee from sexual immorality, from porneia, flee from sexual behavior outside of a covenant union between two differently sexed individuals. Flee from that, run from that. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Paul's exhortation is simple, clear-cut, and straightforward. Flee sexual immorality. Run from it. Don't tiptoe around it. Don't get as close as you possibly can and then come ask your pastor, how far can we go before we cross the line? (laughs) Step back from the line. Commit to a life of purity and holiness, praying for your spouse if you're not called to celibacy and singleness. Flee these things. Why? Why? Because God is a religious prig who just wants you to have no fun for the rest of your life. No. Paul says we are harming ourselves regardless of consent, regardless of the cultural mantras, no harm done. Sexual immorality from a biblical theology of the body dehumanizes our bodies and our spirits and our souls. It dishonors the body that God created, that God loves, that is the locus point of our relationship with, and that he has given infinite dignity to. Former lesbian and atheist turned Catholic writer Melinda Selmas in her book, Sexual Authenticity, this quote is thick and a little bit heavy, so buckle up. Beneath all the pageantry, she, she says, beneath, on the body, she says, beneath all the pageantry of free sex and self-love, there is a fundamental belief that the body doesn't mean anything that it's insignificant in a literal sense, signifying nothing. You can do anything that you like with it. You can pleasure it with a vacuum cleaner or get a drunken stranger in an alleyway to whip it. And you can give it away to anyone for any reason. It's just a sort of wet machine, a tool that you can use in exchange for whatever purpose suits your fancy. Now she goes on and she says, in order to believe this, you must either accept A, that your body is not you. It's just a shell or a juicy robot that the real you, the disembodied ghost, controls. Or you have to believe, B, that there's no such thing as human value or dignity. It's just a nice pretense that we make because we're terrified of this senseless and nihilistic universe. Ironically, Christianity, which has always been accused of putting God before man, stands alone unified, complete, stands alone unified amongst a host of modern philosophies declaring that man is a unified, complete being composed of both a mind and a free will and a body all of which has dignity and meaning. Friends, Jesus' moral standards and authority, God's moral authority over us is an invitation 
to live into and out of our deepest dignity. It is an invitation to live our humanity out in intimate relationship with him. It's the very thing that was promised in the Garden of Eden. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here's your moral standard. And Adam and Eve said, I don't trust you, God. I trust my internal sense of subjective reality. And they chose their course. And we in the world are still eating the fruits of their fall. Christianity's strict sexual codes are not priggish or controlling. They are protective and liberating in the highest degree. So Paul goes on and he emphasizes this gift of holiness that's been given to us and how this gift of holiness that's been given to us should compel the Christian to honor God in our bodies. Verse Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20. Don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. For the Christian, we no longer have ownership over our bodies. We no longer have the right to do whatever we want with our bodies. Our bodies have been purchased by the very blood of Jesus himself. And Paul says our bodies are temples. In Jewish theology, as a good rabbi, he was queuing up all this imagery of the Jewish temples where there was this overlap between heaven and earth. The very presence of God dwelt in that temple on earth as it was in heaven. And now in the wake of Jesus' cleansing death in our place and his resurrection for our victory and the gift of holiness via the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, your body, my body, is now a temple of the Holy Spirit. Our body is the place of overlap between heaven and earth. And so the call that Paul gives in light of this promise of holiness is to let God rule in our bodies as it is in heaven, honoring God with our bodies, that our bodies are for his glory as a place of his presence in this world. This is why Nancy Piercy writes in her book, Love Thy Body, what Christians do with their sexuality is one of the most important testimonies they give to the surrounding world. Sexuality, friends, for the Christian, going clear back to the first century, has always been an area that we are the most different from the world. It's also an area where we are praying as a community in this moral crisis moment we are praying to live as a counter-sexual culture here in the midst of our city. We want to offer the world a way of being where sex doesn't have to be your identity, sex doesn't have to be everything, and sex is not the ultimate and only expression of intimacy. We want to offer a compelling vision of an alternate way of being in this world with one another. And so communities that are being gifted with holiness and that are actively pursuing holiness are creating these countercultures full of intimate relationships where sex is not the end-all be-all with our bodies. And here's what it can look like. This is what we're praying for. This is not exhaustive, but I want you to just lean in and pray with me through this. A counterculture in the city of San Diego where men and women are refraining from sex before marriage. Counterculture in the midst of San Diego where men and women, as you as singles are pursuing marriage, you know you're not called to celibacy and singleness. As you pursue a marriage partner, your first foot forward is to look for a partner who is thick with biblical Jesus-y character that will form more of Christ in you, not necessarily first foot forward, how rich, what's your career trajectory, and how good looking are you? 
In a community like this, it's counterculture. We want our singles and the unmarried, whether divorced or widowed or never married, to be incorporated into our church family as extended members, into our biological family as extended members, having close friendships with both sexes, nurturing relationships with the children, becoming aunties and uncles and all the like. In this modern moment, in a church like Neighbors, I am praying that for our brothers and sisters with same-sex attraction, that they are seen as valued members, that they are given care and support as they navigate living a life of celibacy, a life that says, I am committing my body to Jesus, and that we, the community of these friends and family members, would stand in solidarity with great support. I can tell you that I have learned so much from the gay community that loves Jesus over these last years that have committed their bodies to him to live in relationship with him as the ultimate expression of intimacy. It is truly a profound people group. And I would say, for people that are struggling with issues of sex and gender, neighbors must be a place where they can be listened to with humility and patience and love and carefulness and nuance while they sort through what is moral authority. Where do I learn these things? How do I establish where I know right from wrong? When my feelings are so strong, what do I do with those? Because they are so incongruent with what Christ is telling me to be and to do. And all of us are wrestling through all sorts of issues and feelings and desires that are confusing and overwhelming. Therefore, patience and a community of peace and non-anxious presence must be the counterculture that we shape in the city of San Diego. I realize that there are probably a million questions rushing through all of our heads right now, and that's why the call to community, cups of coffee with your community leaders, cups of coffee with myself, with Alexis, with Shua, with Lex, with all of our leaders, cups of coffee in relationship to discuss these things is so important. So let's wrap this up now. We have been focusing on 1 Corinthians and sexuality. But holiness is so much more broad. It's so much more than just our sexuality. It is what we do in our bodies with our food, what we do in our bodies with our money, what we do in our bodies with our power, what we do in our bodies with our speech. Holiness encompasses all of life, internal and external. And so as we land the plane here this morning, what specific practice are we going to be employing to partner with God in perfecting holiness in the midst of all this moral chaos. You guys ready for this? Fasting. <laughs> Bet you didn't expect that. We start with lofty philosophy around moral relativism, and we end it with, hey, don't eat lunch tomorrow. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> we walk through some of the heaviest, hardest, emotional, most sensitive places that the human experience endures, particularly around sexuality. And then we say, the answer is quit eating. What is wrong with us? Christianity, man, so weird. What is fasting? Fasting is when we go without food, literally, to give our whole heart, mind, and body more fully to God, to submit ourselves to him as our absolute moral authority. And no, it's important, without food. In a, in a culture where, tr where minimalism and you know, doing little fasts from social media is quite trendy and actually very, 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 very good thing, that is not what we're talking about, though. Fasting is abstinence from food. And so, fasting is actually a whole body psychosomatic. That is, psychologically and somatically, soma, within the body. Fasting is a whole body practice, and it's hard for us to get our heads around why would we quit eating as Westerners 
because fasting is a way of saying, I submit to Jesus's authority, his morality, his definition of holiness, not only in my analytical brain where I can make sense of it with truth postulations and and all of these ideas, I'm going to submit to it in my whole body. I'm going to submit to Jesus through my stomach, an embodied act of worship. And we believe that this is one of the most important practices of Jesus for our time. I could spend another hour teaching on fasting. We don't have time for it today. We'll teach on it later in the course of the life of our church. Suffice it to say, fasting was commonplace in the first century church, and we have lost the practice of fasting. But fasting feeds holiness in four different ways as we form a moral countercultural community here in the midst of San Diego. Number one, we starve the flesh and we feed the spirit. The flesh. It's the Greek word sarx. It's a very important word, especially in Pauline literature and Paul's letters. It's the word that Paul uses most often to describe the part of our physical body that's still driven by the echoes of sin, still given over to sin, and still continues in the patterns of the fallen world. That's what flesh is. And so the best way to diminish the strength of the flesh is to literally not give it food. Thomas Akempis, over a millennia ago, said, Restrain from gluttony, and thou shalt the more easily restrain all the inclinations of the flesh. What he was saying is, the less limits that we have on our appetite, this correlates to the less limits that we're going to have on other bodily appetites, like sex, like shopping, like gossip, like anger. Fasting does something where the body engages in a whole psychosomatic practice of prayer, that weakens those patterns of sin, weakens those patterns of the world that have carried us unconsciously through our lives. And so one of the first things when I began fasting that you notice when you start fasting is your desire for sin doesn't go away, but it goes down. It does go down, and your desire and hunger for God does go up. Now, in my own personal experience, it's not in the moment. My sin goes through the roof when I haven't eaten for a couple days. Super angry, super irritable, but it's post, post-fast. There's like this flood of spiritual power that comes and clarity. Number two, when we fast, we finally feel our absolute weakness and our utter need upon God. I like to teach that fasting actually fast-forwards us to our ultimate death. Heavy, heavy. But it does. When you quit eating, you realize if I don't eat again, I will die. And it makes it more real to us. So the more hungry and the weak we get, the more acquainted we become with the reality that God really is our source of life. And that intensifies our love and our gratitude. Our love and our gratitude to him, not only when you break the fast with a delicious burger from In-N-Out and you're like, whoa, this tastes so good, but you're tasting life as a gift to you now. Number three, fasting mysteriously intensifies our prayers. Fasting is a way of praying with our whole body. Scott McKnight calls this body talk. St. Paul in Romans chapter eight said, this is groaning beyond words. Fasting is a way of growing in the power of the Holy Spirit as we weaken our flesh, as we rely upon God completely and entirely to feed us by the Holy Spirit. There's this groaning that happens. There's this empowerment that happens, this mysterious amplifying of our prayer. And then number four, we fast, and so much more needs to be developed on this, but to stand in solidarity with the poor. It's the fasting of Isaiah. It's a way to stand in solidarity with literally our brothers and sisters across the globe today who don't have access to food. So here's the baseline practice that we're calling everybody to. The churches are calling for a once a week fast. 
That's so huge if you've never fasted. You realize that the early church, though, would fast twice a week. We have records of something called the Didache, where it was normal for people to fast every, I think it was like every Wednesday and every Friday, from dinner to dinner. Maybe a reach for you would be once a month, you try a 24-hour fast. Maybe a reach for you is, this week I'm going to skip breakfast and coffee. Pray with your body. The end goal of all of this, my friends, is intimacy with God. That's what we're going for here. We're going for intimacy with God. Fasting is a way of training our body to be hungry for the spirit and for holiness. Fasting is a way of establishing our submission to the moral authority of Jesus through the scriptures, by the spirit, in our bodies. Fasting will teach you, I promise you, as hard as it is, fasting teaches you to feed on joy, the deep joy that never changes. Because when you do start fasting, you begin to realize, oh my gosh, I rely on that cup of coffee for my life. I rely on food for my source of joy and strength. And then as you fast further, you're going to begin to realize, oh my gosh, I rely on money for my sense of security. I rely on those relationships for my sense of acceptance. I rely on all these things but God. But when you remove all of that, especially in a fasted state, you begin to hunger for God and God alone. And that's our motivation, to more deeply experience God, purifying our temples, partnering with him to purify our temples so that we can be a communion place where God meets with us internally and externally. That's our motivation. And so this morning, as we prepare to come to communion and sing, remember the promises. If you have trusted Jesus Christ, you have been gifted with infinite, forever, unchanging holiness. In this moment, because of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, you are seen by God as holy and perfect. Nothing will ever change that. And then out of that promised holiness, received, actively pursue holiness by saying, Father, where am I not submitted to your standards of reality, your standards of what you want me to do in and with my body? And friends, we're like two-year-olds. Have you ever told a two-year-old, no, you can't have that sucker, it's gonna hurt you, it's gonna make your teeth fall out and watch the two-year-old lose their minds? This is what we do with Jesus. I just know that this would be the best thing. And he's saying, no, I love you. You have to trust. This is what pursuing holiness looks like. So we're fasting for a more radical obedience and a deeper surrender to Jesus as our good and perfect moral arbiter and moral authority, as our truth, as our guide, as our God who loves us infinitely. Father, as we prepare to worship and come to communion this morning, With our bodies, we seek to honor you. So much to be prayed for in community, so much to be pursued, so many of our friends, so much pain, so much anxiety, so much uncertainty, so much confusion, even in this room. So much sexual activity, Father, that has actually done harm to our bodies and our minds and our souls. And you're kind and compassionate and you come and you say, I don't condemn you. I want to heal you. I want to heal you. I took that wounding into my body. I took that brokenness, that defilement into my body so that you would be clean. Spirit of God, come. Do what only you can do in this room. Do what only you can do in the church. Move, Father. May we obey you. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Let's all stand.